This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. What is decentralization? There is so much talk about the blockchain and the new technologies lately, but how do these technologies apply to my company? How will we decentralize? How will we adopt the blockchain? What do we need to do to get ready for the future? To answer these questions and more, Matt Lysing. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joel. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you. Uh, and you're a different kind of guest than than many others. You're not a uh, technology expert per se, right? Correct. Okay. So uh, you're a journalist and you uh, catalog what a lot of these experts are doing for business people to understand it better and so forth. So tell us a little bit about your, your journey. Like what, what, uh, what are you out there doing? Yeah, sure. I, um, have been a reporter for about 20 years. Uh, I spent 17 of those years with Bloomberg news, um, in New York city. So, um, I moved to New York, uh, didn't have a job, didn't have a place to live. And basically, uh, after about eight months uh, of applying for jobs, I got hired at Bloomberg um, in 2004. I uh, didn't know a thing about finance, so it was all learning on the job. Um, I started uh, on the energy team and then slowly made my way into like the trading world and, and how derivatives exchanges worked and um, futures contracts and stuff like that. That led me into... Um, learning about over-the-counter derivatives like swaps. Um, and this is coming right up into the financial crisis when um, the over-the-counter derivatives market had a huge impact and an effect on uh, making the financial crisis worse in 2008. So by that point, I was sort of like, my, my beat was called market structure. And it was like, how do markets work or don't work? What's going on with the regulation? What's uh, How are they trying to modernize? And so... After the dust settled in the financial crisis, you know the swaps market went from being unregulated to regulated through the Dodd Frank Act, and I covered that extensively for Bloomberg, and um, really got a pretty good, deep understanding of how these um, markets worked, who the players were, the you know exchanges and, and the banks and, and the hedge funds and everybody who is you know who makes this market up. So, I my journey just continued from there. And uh, I started covering the treasury market like that. I started covering the corporate bond market in a similar fashion. So by 2015, um, I finally wrapped my head around what the blockchain was all about. And I had kind of dismissed Bitcoin up to that point. I didn't quite understand it, how something that didn't exist or was ones and zeros could have any value. The underlying blockchain idea, though, really kind of lit the um, light bulb over my head because what it is is a network of computers that's spread around the world and they're all in consensus about the state of the ledger. So if I send a Bitcoin from A to B, the ledger records that it's public, everyone can see it and there's no middleman involved. Nobody can stop it. No government, no corporation. So I was like, oh, Wall Street is like a small version of that because you've got the banks, you've got the asset managers, you've got hedge funds. They're all trading with each other every day. Trillions of dollars worth of securities and derivatives and assets are going back and forth. And if you could apply the same network idea to that where everyone would still be known to each other, so it's a type of private blockchain, but it's still the same concept. It really kind of like 
just made me think, oh, I need to start covering this because I think it's going to potentially change how Wall Street works. Let's let's dig into this a little more just because I, I want everybody to be crystal clear on what this is. The blockchain and Bitcoin is not the same. Not correct. Um, not exactly. So the blockchain is what underpins Bitcoin. So it, the blockchain is what makes Bitcoin possible and why Bitcoin was the first digital or the first cryptocurrency to um, succeed. Because you have to account for the fact that if it's a digital asset, you can forge it and try to pass it off as something that's real when it's just something that you made on your computer. The blockchain aspect um, makes that impossible because what it does is it records every single Bitcoin transaction that's ever happened in the history of Bitcoin. So if I'm trying to send you some Bitcoin, the network knows where I got that Bitcoin from and where it came before that and before that and before that. So it checks every time somebody tries to send Bitcoin to someone else to make sure that it's valid. That's like one of the main purposes of um, the Bitcoin blockchain. It's, it's This is called the double spend problem. And it was a it kind of um, plagued earlier digital um, currency projects because if you can't ensure that the Bitcoin I'm trying to send to you is valid, then you know you don't have anything. It's vaporware. But Satoshi Nakamoto, the guy who created Bitcoin, came up with the blockchain idea and put together ideas that had been out there, but they were kind of disparate ideas. He brought them all together into the Bitcoin white paper, and, and it's been going strong ever since 2009. So I so just to be crystal clear, so everybody's clear about this, uh, the blockchain, I think of it, it's a big database, right? Yes. Is, is that close? Yeah, it's a it's a distributed ledger or a distributed database that lives on um, anyone's computer around the world that wants to you know run the software. Okay, so uh, and the uh, Bitcoin is one application of this giant database. So we're not talking. This show is not really talking so much about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin as it is talking about the database and the applications and the way companies can use this database uh, for a lot of their advanced activities. Yeah. So in Bitcoin's case, that is the only, um, really the only application it has. Like the Bitcoin blockchain ensures that the Bitcoin, you know, that Bitcoin is is uh, the ledger is always up to date and and it's keeping track of who's sending what to where. Um, there's just a quick aside, the Ethereum blockchain, which came after Bitcoin is a much more complex um, blockchain and you can host computer programs on top of it. So that's why you've got new things coming out in this world, like um, non-fungible tokens and um, peer-to-peer trading and all sorts of things that we probably won't get into, but there are, um, yeah. So the Ethereum blockchain is really what people are talking about when we talk about business applications here and, and what I was talking about when I thought that Wall Street could really sort of, um, you know, benefit from this um, new technology. And is, and is that Ethereum blockchain, is that the one that's called ERC-20? That is a type of token that lives on the Ethereum blockchain. So if you want to create um, Joel coin, you could create an ERC-20 token on top of Ethereum called JoelCoin. So that's where you get all these different um, cryptocurrencies um, like Dogecoin or, um, you know, there's, the list is like there's thousands of them out there. Those all um, exist um, within the block, the Ethereum blockchain world. Okay. So let's talk about some of the applications 
for uh, for using Bitcoin inside of business. What are, what are some of the great applications that you're seeing? I mean, I've, I've heard that voting is going to be made possible this way. Uh, you know, trading of of, of all kinds of uh, you know currency, commodities, other kinds of things happens this way. Medical records could happen better this way with better security. What are, what are you seeing out there? I think what's happening on the business side um, is people are realizing that even if they're in a competitive business, like say um, shipping or supply management, they're all, you know, basically all those companies are doing the same sort of thing. And and if they made a network of, of all of their operations that where competitors could be in this network, um, but have it so that, you know, you're not giving away your business secrets, but you're also, um, if you're in supply chain, you know, like let's say you're a car manufacturer, you've got thousands of different places you're getting your supplies from, your parts are being made, you know, and if one of those areas breaks down, it can take, you know, days or weeks to figure it out. And and you've all that time is lost production time. If all of those um, third-party providers were on one network, then as soon as there was an issue, um, like a, a breakdown or, or somebody ran out of rubber or whatever the case may be, you would now know it immediately and you could try to route around that. So it, it can bring an, an immense um, gain in efficiency. Um, you can also, like in the banking system, if if you are trading with your hedge fund clients and your asset manager clients and other banks every day, just as Wall Street does, um, you are using all these different systems like bank, you know, Bank of America wants to trade securities with Citadel. They have to go, you know, through um, the stock exchange and then they go through um, the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation and other banks are involved. And all these things are moving around is why it takes typically two to three days to settle a securities transaction. If instead you were on a, a digital network with all of those people, with Bank of America, Citadel, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, and you were trading directly with them with some kind of cryptocurrency that is the payment leg, now you're talking about near instantaneous settlement. And so on Wall Street, when you are waiting to settle a trade, you have to set some of your money aside to make sure in case it goes bad. That's money that's tied up. And, and it's capital that can't be used for other purposes. If you took away those two to three days where your your capital is tied up and made it instantaneous, then think about the efficiency of what you can use that money for. You know, all sorts of other business opportunities come up. So, I think on the business side, um, it is it is really uh, a lot of industries are figuring out that, that this network um, idea. As long as you know there's enough protections in there for you know you don't want to give away your your position on to competitors or what you're doing, but there are ways of making sure that that doesn't happen. I think that that's something that 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 a lot of different industries are very interested in right now. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating. So, are these applications mostly happening industry wide or company wide? In other words, are companies developing these blockchains for themselves or? Are they being used in industries where many players get to take advantage of it? The real benefit comes when it, it's not company-wide, it's it's industry-wide. So because you want to, um, you just want to make those connect, like the trading or the um, whatever your business operations are, if you can sort of cut out the middlemen and cut out steps from those processes um, and make it more efficient, that that's where people are really um 
getting excited about this. Yeah. Is it, um, one, one other thing that's, that's an important thing to uh, identify is that uh, let's talk about the privacy of the blockchain. Every single transaction is recorded and available for everyone in the world to see, but they're anonymous. The name of the person is not identified. So could you just talk about levels of privacy? Because people get very nervous about, hey, listen, if everything is recorded, then isn't everybody going to know my business? Right. Yeah, of course. There are two types of blockchains out there right now. There's public blockchains and private blockchains. So public is like Bitcoin, or like you said, Everyone has an address. It's just a, a string of random characters. Um, so you have no idea who's behind that address unless you do. And some people make their addresses public. Um, some exchanges have public addresses because they need to. So then once you've linked that sort of string of characters to an identity, then you can see everything they've ever done on the blockchain because the record is there and it's public. So of course, that's that is a drawback for some people. In business, um, on the other hand, you have the ability to make private networks that um, are taking the benefits of the sort of peer-to-peer -peer trading, like company-to-company -company, um, transactions, but it's a walled garden. And you, so JP Morgan would know who Citadel is, who would know who Goldman Sachs is, who would know who BlackRock is. And they um, have to do that because they have to know who they're trading with and who their counterparties are. That there are definitely, you know, very strict rules about know your customer rules and all that sort of stuff um, in finance. So, another example would be maybe Maersk and um, some other shipping companies are in the same network so that they can um, coordinate and and make um, things easier uh, in their day to day operations. But they would all know who the different participants are in that network. So. You know, it's 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 really just about kind of cutting out like some of the stuff that makes transactions take days or weeks, and it's really about trying to make them faster. Um, when you're in a private network like that, you don't um, you're still protecting your company's business. There are ways of encrypting things. Um, there are very complicated ways that we won't get into to make sure that nobody knows what you're doing. But you're still in this trusted network of of your competitors and peers, and so. Um, on the business side, you know, it is taking a while to sort of develop these, um, you know, these processes, but it is definitely moving along. Um, so I think that that's, that's what's on the privacy side. That's, that's a big concern for people, but there are a lot of, um, these are called enterprise blockchains that are, you know, people are working towards them and, and they are definitely, um, coming along. One of the things that people, uh, seem to confuse is uh, the difference between the applications like like a, uh, a cryptocurrency and the underlying machinery. Like, for example, uh, the brokerage companies, the, the cryptocurrency brokerage companies, the, the trading companies, uh, Coinbase and these other big outfits that are out there doing this, um, their machinery is so sophisticated. It, it, it is mind-boggling. Uh, and it seems to me to be heads and tails better than NASDAQ or anything else that we do. There's no interpersonal interaction. The settlements are fast. I mean, they are literally trading trillions and trillions of units of securities every single day. Uh, you know, millions of times more than the uh, stock exchanges do right now. And they seem to do it with great efficiency. And it seems like it's really working. I mean, what's your assessment of that? Yeah, they also don't, you know, shut down at four 
o'clock in the afternoon. Um, you know, this is a this is a twenty four seven market. Um, Coinbase is never closed. Um, FTX, you know, all the other big exchanges are. Uh, they have a global reach, and they are, like I said, um, you know, the stock market opens and closes, and it's not open on the weekend. Crypto is open like all the time, so it's also on that backdrop. It's it's pretty interesting too that they're they're doing pretty well. Um, I think uh, it, that being said, there are still some, you know, they they've still sort of followed in the traditional finance um, blueprint, um, you know. All of the transactions at Coinbase are internal. Those are not recorded on the blockchain because it's too slow for that. So when the trading happens um, inside of Coinbase, that's something that's all done by the Coinbase matching engines, and it's uh, you know it's inside of the Coinbase kind of world. Um, so that is a centralized party, and that's one thing that when we're talking about decentralization, a lot of people are trying to get away from that. They don't want to have a single point of failure like an exchange like coinbase um you know we've seen things in the traditional financial markets like a flash crash um on the new york stock exchange or um, other exchanges going down you know and that's happened to coinbase as well so there still are are these um kind of traditional roles that that some of these companies are playing and then on top of that you know people have also made peer-to-peer um trading platforms where there is no central party like like coinbase or the new york stock exchange it's just me and you joel and where we can just trade directly between each other um the way that ethereum works and the way that smart contracts work you know you can know that you can it's you don't have to trust in the counterparty because the transaction either um, is approved or it fails immediately there's no kind of gray area so there are all kinds of things that are being enabled by um, this new technology that I think are really exciting a lot of people. Um, I know over the years, there's been quite a lot of folks leaving traditional finance to go into crypto. Um, a lot of other industries are, are kind of following in that path. Um, so I think it's not going away. And I think it's just, it's something that people need to grapple with. You know, with every new uh, technology, uh, there are winners and there are losers. Uh, you know, the uh, this is exciting. It's, it's going to speed things up. It's going to do things better. But it seems to me like there's a lot of intermediaries and other people that are going to get knocked out of the game that have to be nervous. I mean, I remember when the internet was new, the first thing to go were travel agents because uh, 50-something-year-old people started wanting to book their travel uh, without having to call somebody and, and go slow and they could look at all the pictures and things. And that was really the first application that I remember that kind of made people want to buy computers and kind of get going on the internet. And that, sure. that really kind of stimulated that whole internet economy in the late nineties. And then the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the job intermediaries and headhunters and those people, uh, they started having problems because monster.com came on. So when you look at, at this whole uh, ecosystem of the blockchain and all the rest, I mean, what I'm hearing, I'm hearing escrow companies start to disappear. Brokers start to disappear. Uh, you know, all kinds of people start to disappear. Uh, who are some of the people that you see going by the wayside, and and how hard are they fighting to keep this out of our uh, out of our awareness? Yeah, I I definitely you know that is sort of the whole raison d'etre of this um, technology is to reduce um, 
centralized functions and middlemen. And so I think an example that a lot of people can understand immediately is the music business where you've got record companies who for decades um, relied on, you know, wrote contracts for their artists that usually included, you know, very onerous lending terms so that they could, you know, make a record. And then they, the artists owed, you know, the record company, um, all of that back before they start seeing anything in royalties. And that that's just the way it was for decades. And now with this sort of new peer-to-peer um, technology, if, if an artist has a fan base, they can go directly to the fan base and they can even um, raise money from their fans by maybe giving access to them um, during the recording or the writing process of what they're doing. Or maybe they're going to turn their master tracks into an NFT and, and sell those. Um, so now our musicians are making their music the same way they always did. The fans are getting the music the same way and the fans are getting more experiences that, that than were ever possible before. And there's no record company in that conversation. Um, another example is, you know, filmmaking is, is like I interviewed, um, Julie Pacino a few months ago. She's the daughter of Al Pacino. She's an amazing photographer and filmmaker. She was able to, um, sell some of the photos from her um like movie the newest movie she's working on she sold those as nfts and was able to raise enough money to entirely self-finance her movie so now there's no studio that's necessary because the studio is there to lend money so filmmakers you know can make their movies so that's where i think it's getting really interesting and probably really nerve-wracking for movie studios music companies um Anybody who just kind of sits in the middle and sort of is, you know, the derogatory term, I guess, is a rent seeker, right? And so you can then apply that to all sorts of different um, industries, like you were mentioning escrow and some of the things that just seem like somebody just figured out that I can insert myself into this process and, you know, maybe exclude, like, exclude my competitors and just have this fat little slice of the pie. <laughs> so <laughs> if, if you're that person or I, I would be a little worried about this. And that being said, I, I want to just make sure people understand what we're talking about here is not replacing things that already exist. I think it's just an alternative system that people are interested in creating. Um, cryptocurrencies and web three is not going to make um, wall street disappear. It's not going to make Sony disappear, but it's going to give people an option for a different way of doing things. And so I think that a lot of people think that's what, and, and I think a lot of people react negatively to this because they think, oh, they're coming to destroy all these things that I'm used to. And I don't think it's that at all. I think it's just giving an, a different way of doing things and a different approach to people who want to do that. If you don't, you know, nobody's holding a gun to your head and saying you have to buy an NFT. <laughs> so you know, I, I think that's 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 an important thing to to keep in mind. Well, I don't, I don't think that this is about uh, destroying anything. I mean, this is this is a better way of doing a lot of things we're used to doing. It reduces a lot of friction. Instead of something taking two or three days with uh, many people in the middle, uh, it it might happen instantly with nobody in the middle. Right, and that means the transaction costs are reduced. Uh, most of Wall Street, by the way, is a brokerage function. In some way, they're intermediaries. Now, they do uh, lend some money of their own, but for the most part, they're brokering other people's money. All investment banking is brokerage. 
I mean, most of what happens with financial advisors is a brokerage function. I mean, so a lot of these people uh, have to figure out how they're going to add more value in a certain way. Uh, although it's not going to make everything go away, it is going to force people to think about how they're going to add more value and do better at whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah. And another thing that's really interesting here for people to think about is um, these systems have embedded within them um, a monetary value. Like there's a cryptocurrency in, involved here in all of the things we're talking about. So in the case of Ethereum, it's its own native cryptocurrency called Ether. So imagine what the internet would have been like if digital money had been a part of it from the very beginning. And you didn't have to have a bank account that was linked up to it, but there was some sort of native internet token that you could use. And so when you're going to buy something, it's just right there and it's instantaneous. That never happened um, because I think there was a lot of pushback from banks and, and brokerages and, and people who the payments industry, credit cards, didn't want that to happen. With crypto, it happened and it's happening now. So you, you, you get this efficiency gain um, and then on top of that is this monetary layer to it that is really kind of mind-blowing when you start thinking about what the implications of that being because it's it's everything wrapped up into one. That's why a lot of people are calling this Web3. It's the third iteration of the World Wide Web where Web1 was really just the internet and the, the early bare bones of it, You know, the early email programs, AOL, that kind of thing. Web2 is when big companies came around and, and Apple was there and Facebook and Google, um, but they were all centralized. Now, Web3 is really about a new internet that's decentralized, that's got embedded cryptocurrency or digital money payments um, right there with it all. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's why a lot of people are getting excited about it, though it's still quite early. Yeah, it's it's early, but uh, but it's timely. I mean, we've evolved to this is where the place is. So let's the, the last thing I want to talk about before we run out of time uh, on the topic of uh, there are people who would like to see this slowing down because they're uh, concerned that their that their fence around whatever industry it is that they control is kind of breaking down. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, Wall Street has an absolute reason to slow this all down. I mean, I think the credit card companies are concerned about it. The mortgage companies, the Wall Street banks, all the big companies are very concerned about it. And what's going to really help the internet, uh, the uh, the cryptocurrency markets to really take off, in my opinion, is more regulation. There isn't enough regulation around it to really make people feel safe. Right now, uh, you got the pump and dump scams, you got schemes, you got all these different deals. I mean, even somebody like myself, who's been in the hedge fund business for years and years, uh, I don't know if cryptocurrency should follow the rules of commodities like a potato or securities like a stock. I mean, they haven't come out and said, this is what it is. And even though there've been a very small number of companies that have gone public and so they're, they're out there doing things, the rules are not clear. And, you know, there's just all these different problems. And I kind of wonder if the SEC is dragging its feet. Uh, to protect some of the friends on Wall Street that they're trying to let get their ducks in a row. I, I kind of wonder about that. Yeah, I think um, it is definitely true that, uh, that there has not been good communication from regulators um, for the most part. Um, the SEC has been particularly bad here. I think the Commodity Futures Trading Commission has been better 
Um, they've been pretty clear that they they view Bitcoin and Ethereum as commodities. Um, and so the SEC, on the other hand, is like a lot of this stuff looks like unregistered securities to us. And they've, <laughs> they've gone after it and they've done a lot of different enforcement actions. So again, this is like old hat um, on Wall Street. The CFTC and, and other regular and the, the SEC are often fighting for turf um, and and what you know they get to regulate. Um, it goes to Congress because there, there'll be different committees, like the Agriculture Committee oversees the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and the Banking Committee oversees the SEC. So you know there's these turf battles, and and nobody in Congress wants to see their agency go away because then they have less power. Um, I think it really needs to come from Congress. I think um, the rules that like um, on the SEC side, um, there's something called the Howey test that's used to determine if something's a security or not. It dates back to a 1930s court case about um, somebody selling shares in an orange grove in Florida. So while it worked for, I think, a lot of the 20th century and, 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 and up till now, I don't see how you can shoehorn crypto and Web3 into a 1930s era law when what you're talking about here a lot of times is a smart contract is the arbiter between a buyer and a seller. It's a piece of code. Um, you know, a lot of times these things, they don't actually physically exist. And and there are new um, models and new ways of trading and of um, interacting with them that I think need to be addressed. And I think it's really up to Congress to wrap their heads around it and, and write some new legislation so that we can start, you know, and that's obviously a very public process where everyone who's in uh, has has a you know a stake in this can get involved and can start you know trying to lobby for their own positions rather than what we've seen too much of in my opinion is the sec coming out with an enforcement action against somebody who now realizes oh i guess we were breaking the rules because we're being sued by the sec when there was no prior sort of you know um conversation about that with regulators I, I think that's kind of putting the cart before the horse and um so i'm really hoping that congress gets its act together and and helps lay down the rules because people in this country that i know you know who are this is their whole lives and this is their whole business that they, they want to know what the rules are so they can they can follow them listen that that's what i'm saying it's uh you know if you don't know what the rules are and there's no clarity then then they determine that you broke the rules uh, you certainly didn't do it on purpose because the rules aren't clear and the whole thing. So, listen, maybe you're right. Maybe Congress is uh, is the one that has to kind of decide what's going to happen. Um, the one thing that is crystal clear to me is that 30 years ago when the Internet came online, American companies were first in line. We were jumping all over the place. And we got all the great Internet companies uh, originally were ours uh, there. And there just were a small number of international companies that, you know, that really were important big companies that have grown to be large. Uh, that's not true in crypto. In crypto, uh, the United States is just one player among many, and other countries are doing a much better job of adopting cryptocurrency. Uh, but I believe that the United States of America will adopt cryptocurrency. Uh, it won't be a Bitcoin. It'll be something else. But we will move to a digital uh, currency not long from now, and I think we're going to get forced into it by our trading partners. So I think it would just be smart of us to get ahead of the curve and and make some rules so we can start playing ball in a smart way yeah i i agree and i think if you think about the way 
how slow it can take for money to move around the world in different industries or just um, central banking. You know, we're, we're talking again about a huge gain in efficiency. And I think the horse is out of the barn there, you know, and th this is not going away. And I think um, the government and different industries are, are, you know, really coming to grips with that and, and realizing that they, they need to evolve along with this. Yeah. Well, listen, this, uh, the promise of this show is to deliver the inside track, which is the best, smartest, or fastest way to get something done. And uh, you certainly have delivered uh, on the promise of the show, opening up the door, kind of pulling back the curtain and telling us, uh, you know, how this all works. Uh, it is a complicated world. Uh, I know that you have uh, produced a book on this whole topic. Uh, do you want to share something about that with us? Yeah, sure. Um, I wrote a, a book called Out of the Ether. Uh, it's the history of Ethereum, um, the blockchain we've been talking about, and the people who created it um, starting in about 2013. Um, the inventor is a, this genius named Vitalik Buterin. Um, he created the idea and then gathered around him a bunch of co-founders um, to make Ethereum, you know, from going from theory to, to reality. Uh, it's the story of those folks there, there was um, a whole bunch of politics and greed and human, you know, interest. And, um, you know, from the very get go, it's a very human story, uh, even though it's about a complicated subject. Um, but I really tried to write it through the characters who were involved and the people, um, you know, I was really lucky to get a lot of time with all of the co-founders and Vitalik shared emails with me um, from the time. And I spoke to his parents, I went to his high school, you know, so I feel like I did my best to humanize this story so that people could um, easily approach it because it can be scary. And so hopefully um, that's what I did. And, you know, um, I'd love to offer your listeners, you know, 25% uh, off if they want to go to out of the ether.net um, and, and you can get a special edition there. There are only a thousand um, copies ever made. So if you, um, if you go there and use the the code at the checkout of inside track, um, twenty five percent off, and you can you can learn more about the history of Ethereum and the the brilliant, amazing people that brought it to life. Well, listen, man, thank you. That that is really uh, really nice of you to offer uh, offer everybody twenty five percent. What's the website again? It's out of the ether. Out of the net. ether, and that, yeah. by the way, will be in the show notes. People can see what that is. Use the code uh, inside track, and that'll get you twenty five percent off. Uh, you know, whenever somebody uh, lives up to the promise of the show, delivering the inside track, uh, you know, we call those people advantage players and uh, you certainly are an advantage player in our book. So thank you very much for, uh, for sharing with us and, and, you know, just kind of putting out there, you know, what it is, you know, and what you're doing, uh, very fascinating. This is a complicated world, but it's a world that, uh, the senior executive audience of our show really needs to kind of hook into and. Uh, as much as it might be a little painful to kind of get started, I think it's something that, uh, you know, your thing might be just what the doctor ordered to kind of help people get in there in an easy way. So, uh, Matt, thanks very much for being on the show. And we look forward to keeping you on board as a friend of the show. Yeah, you're welcome, Joel. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Autovita Studios. 
profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.